1978, my mom sent me off to spend a few weeks with my Uncle Walter in Philadelphia. I was 10 or 11 years old at the time, and it was my first time visiting what my mom kept calling the City of Brotherly Love. Though, to be honest, the parts haunted by my uncle didn't really fit the images that name conjured in my imagination. It reminded me more of the opening shots in Welcome Back, Cotter than Sesame Street or the Land of Make-Believe, and I didn't know pee had a smell until I took my first trip down into a SEPTA subway station. Uncle Walter worked as a technician for different clubs in South Philly, and he was a bit of a drinker. Being 9 or 10, I thought it was hilarious the way Uncle Walter became Walt after a few drinks. He never showed me the inside of the smoke-filled Irish pubs Mom always talked about, but he did show me how fast a bottle of cheap whiskey could become an explosive projectile against dog-sized rats. Sorry, that's another story. Why she sent me to see Uncle Walter, I don't know. It was a different time, and I think that choice today would have ended with me in foster care. I don't think Mom knew how Uncle Walter lived, and certainly had no idea that he could put down two pub-sized bottles in a night and still function reasonably well, or better than some of the people he introduced me to at the clubs he worked. Mom said he was a college graduate. He had a lot of books and shelves around his shitty little apartment. I called it a library with a bed. Walter laughed about that, telling me that his friends called it the drinking library. He had an old hi-fi and he played records by Lenny Bruce and Monty Python. He had a lot of scary books about monsters that I didn't want to see at the time, but the names on those books would come back to me later in life. Robert E. Howard, Robert A. Wilson, Robert W. Chambers, Bradbury, Lovecraft, Ellison, Blackwood, and a lot of naked cartoons and heavy metal and National Lampoon mags lying around on the cluttered coffee table. Walt didn't care what I read, but said that I couldn't take anything home because my mother would kill us both. I understood that completely, though I really wanted to hear more by the guys who did the Spanish Inquisition and Dave's not here, man. And while I had no idea what marijuana was, I did like the bit about having a place for my stuff. In the center of this hidden library was a massive framed poster of John Lennon's face, hair, and spectacles with the caption, A dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. I had trouble sleeping in the living room knowing that Lennon was still staring down at me. Walt had to work over my last weekend there. He always had to work, but there was something very important he had to do for one of his many employers that Friday afternoon, so he and I walked about a hundred blocks from his dark, dirty little apartment on Wolverton Street down to South Street. Along the way, he would dance and tell jokes, play the goofball for my amusement. Nestled in between a store with naughty gift items and a place to secure bail bonds, the Chuckle Hut was a place you would have walked by and assumed vacant. It had a faded sign out front and trash up against the doors. But Walt walked right in through the big frosted glass doors like he owned the place. It had the feel of a secret headquarters, a place one shouldn't go. When I asked Walt where we were going, he just kept walking, eyes working out the dimly lit path between matte black walls through a series of hallways, trying to remember how to get where he needed to be. It was like walking through a funhouse, and I kept expecting paper dragons or plaster mummies to pop out of the recessed doorways, but the only thing we kicked up was a cloud of dirt and sawdust that flickered in the pale light through the dirty glass doors behind us. Somewhere behind probably half a dozen doors and corners, somebody was plucking strings on a banjo. Despite the darkness and the weirdness, I knew that wherever I went with Walt, there were always some really cool people. He would tell me that I was going behind the scenes, 
or where no one younger than 21 was allowed under normal circumstances. Walt would always apologize to the guy in charge about me, saying I was his sister's kid and he couldn't leave me home alone with the rats, which I think was a joke. Then pawn me off on some waitress who would sit me down at a bar with a soda, or some accountant who would let me mess around with a calculator. Stuff like that. They'd all sound amazed that Walt had any family, much less some little kid. For some reason, I'd always remind them of someone they knew from somewhere far away or long ago. I did this about a dozen times that week, and the conversations would be roughly the same. Hello, Winston. Hi. That's a great name. Thanks. There's an empty chair in the corner. Have a seat. Okay. Got anything to play with? My little electronic basketball game. Does it have a volume control? No. Do you like Philadelphia? Yeah. Did you see the Liberty Bell? No. What grade are you in? Going into fifth, etc. Meanwhile, Walt would be moving speakers and stringing cables across a stage, or doing stuff that looked like Han Solo digging through the guts of the Millennium Falcon in Empire Strikes Back. He would have this look of concentration and frustration, like he had no idea why anyone would put things together in such a stupid way. Then he would break into a sweat trying to fix things in a short period of time. There was always a show to do and something major to be fixed. That's what a lot of Walt's friends, well, not friends though, employers, called him. Walt the Fixer. And he always ended his work with a shoulder squared, striding up to the bar. There was always a bar or a lounge, like some macho gunslinger to accept part of his payment in booze. He never asked. Someone behind the bar just pulled a jug of gold or brown liquor off the shelf and presented it to the conquering hero. To be honest, I assume that's how all workers in that business were paid. I didn't really think about the wary side glance I'd sometimes get from the person handing off a bottle to Uncle Walt. At the Chuckle Hut, my temporary guardian was a middle-aged nightclub owner who smelled like menthol cigarettes and fish sticks. She sat behind a desk covered in papers. She was so busy working, she barely pretended to be happy I was there. She certainly looked stressed and swore on the telephone a lot and told me to shut off my basketball game because its blips and beeps distracted her from grinding pencils into nubs. Eventually, I slipped out into the hall toward the sound of laughter. I liked looking at the clubs where Walt worked. Usually there was a stage and a bunch of dining tables and a bar at the back. There were always cool things to look at, and I sometimes got to test the microphones on stage or stand in the spotlights while the stagehands moved them around. These clubs usually had walls of photos, headshots of performers who worked there, autographed and framed. The Chuckle Hut looked like it had been a long time since any fresh performers worked that stage. Their wall of fame was full of grayscale mug shots, a dozen or so cartoonishly fat or flat faces arranged into the kind of expressions one might show a baby or work through a tough bowel movement. Clowns without makeup. I was young, but I knew that comedians didn't look like that anymore. They looked like people I saw in photos but was too young to have heard yet. George Carlin, John Belushi, Richard Pryor. Not Shecky the Mook. Looking through the cobwebs into faces desperate for my affection, I kept hearing laughter from down the hall toward the stage. A small group of maybe three or four men. Even back then, I got the impression the laughs were exaggerated slightly like the kind I would come to hear at business meetings whenever the client took the time to tell a joke. It didn't matter if it was really funny, amusing, or just sucked. Sycophants will always laugh loudest. I imagine it was the kind of laughter Lord Vosh received when he performed. 
Lord Vosh was a vaudevillian whose life, to me, was nothing more than a headshot. A stoic-looking man with the face of a boy, but eyes older than I could know. Top hat and a weird old-timey wing collar clasped together with a fat jewel. Through the decades, he commanded that I understand his importance among the ranks of unwashed carnies and gillyhangers. I saw a scene play out in my head. Lord Vosh stood on a stage talking about his day, paid lackeys laughing wildly at everything, even the jokes. The scene started playing out in my head until I felt a hand on my shoulder. I thought it was Uncle Walter or maybe Menthol and Fishstick's lady coming to scold me, but it wasn't. Towering over me was the whitest white man I've ever seen. And to be fair, he was probably whiter than white because of the black walls behind him and the fact that he stood directly under the suspended house light in the hallway. He wore an impeccable white suit with shiny white shoes, white coat, white vest, and a slightly less white necktie. White hair and creamy, almost ghostly skin. White, huge white teeth. He looked as serious as Lord Vosh, like he was attempting to out-serious Lord Vosh in his white suit. Like spy versus spy, this was the white spy come to challenge Lord Vosh's black spy. Just when I thought to try and run somewhere else, his comparatively robust lips parted, his jaw opened, and his handsome face contorted into what looked like a braying donkey. His face collected into the expression of another 12-year-old boy who really liked balloon animals and really, really, really hoped I liked them too. Sure, I answered, terrified but intrigued. There were more words, but of all of them I remember were, this is going to be the most amazing balloon animal you've ever seen. And the man in white said this with such authority that I was sure he went to the end of the universe to find this unique balloon animal. He produced from his white pocket a bright red balloon, stretched it between two rubbery arms, and blew into the open end. I didn't realize how hard I was laughing until my chest hurt, but I watched this man put the effort of Hercules into his task, the balloon filling gracefully and softly with each agonized, eye-rolling breath. When it was full, the man in white resumed telling me about the balloon animal, locking eyes with me and mercifully asking me the questions I had been programmed to answer. All the while, he was twisting and bending the squeaky balloon in a number of different ways. He told me the story of the most amazing balloon animal, where it came from, that it ate six times its weight in crickets and enjoyed snuggling inside bunny slippers. And then he held it out for my inspection, that excited, childlike expression on his face demanding to know, Do you like it? Huh? 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 It was a blob of bent and twisted balloon. When I couldn't make out what it was, I just laughed so hard I bumped my head against the wall behind me. There you go, kid. It's nice to have an honest audience. He spread the balloon shape apart and pinched it back on my head like a mangled sausage hat. He winked, smiled, and walked off. Great name, Winston. A man behind him carrying a banjo case looked at me like I had just been touched by the Pope. When he was gone, I saw Uncle Walter standing at the corner, his face and posture fighting between horror and bursting pride. I had no idea what just happened beyond having a weird guy in white throw a balloon hat on my head. That was my mean Joe Green moment, my movie's celebrity cameo. And while I've met quite a few would-be, are, and were celebrities over the years, that moment was unique. I was a kid, so he needed nothing from me. I didn't know his name, so I expected nothing from him. He simply shared that moment and made me laugh. Perhaps he needed an honest laugh. 
Perhaps it was just in his nature to be that way with kids. But it was a moment where he appeared to me, communicated with me, and moved on. We were both on very different highs that night coming back to Walter's apartment. I couldn't wait to show Mom and my friends my balloons. Walter told me jokes, some of which went over my head, but some that made me laugh with Walter's funny faces, all of which were stolen from the acts he'd seen over his years working those clubs. I didn't even mind walking through his neighborhood at night. Walter was so confident, so jazzed by the night, that we walked past shadows and ruins under the yellow street lamps twenty blocks to his building. Walt told me stories about my mom, stories I desperately wish I could remember in more detail, that happened when she was my age. Stories that made me laugh when I thought of them being about my uptight, seemingly serious mother. Every important sentence and each important point ended with a pull from his bottle until we got to the fifth floor, stepping off the wobbly elevator. I was never scared of the city. The city has a lot of things lurking in it that are scary enough, but the city itself will always be a reference library of all the people and things the art and the inspiration that make life worth living as well as all that we live life fighting. Crumbling masonry and broken glass are not scary, but until I die I will have nightmares about a man in a long gray coat and hat standing outside Walter's apartment door. He stood beside the door under the hallway light so that the brim cast a long shadow over his face and neck. He stood with a bent knee, his pulsed shoe pressed flat against the door frame. The man didn't scare me until I felt Uncle Walter put a hand to my chest to stop me. All the joy, all the energy, all that life we shared since leaving the chuckle hut left his face and he told me to wait beside the elevator. He looked genuinely afraid. Afraid for me and himself. For a suburban kid brought up on Rockford Files and Beretta and Starsky and Hutch, this was one of those moments when the soundtrack would get low and slow and the good guy would get a beat down from some goon over a job gone bad or an unpaid debt. The reality was probably the latter, but that's all I had to go by as I watched Uncle Walter walk up the hall toward the door. I hid near the door trying to think of some scrappy kung fu moves or how fast I could get to the lobby to call the cops. And then I imagined the man in white stepping off the elevator to save the day, baffling the man in the hat with ninja-like balloon-bending skills before punching him through a neighbor's door in slow motion. But that didn't happen. The man in the suit handed Uncle Walter an envelope of papers, the kind I've come to know as trifold legal documents of the type delivered by process servers. But to my young eyes, they could have been instructions for a secret mission, or a bad homework assignment, or something bad enough to cause Uncle Walter's shoulder to slump. He leaned against his front door as the man in the hat walked toward me and the elevator. I think he knew I was terrified because he gave me wide berth as he passed me in the hall. I ran when I heard Walter's keys in the front door. Shortly after first light the next morning, Mom was at Walter's house to take me home. Oh, I gave her hell. She said nothing to Walter, but he looked like he was in trouble. I thought at the time it was with my mom, but over the years I put the pieces together. In the haze of sleep and the fury of my trip cut short, I wondered just for a moment why Walter was packing a bag with his own clothes and thought he might be coming to stay with us. But I left the apartment quietly when Walter told me just to shut up and go. I rode the entire two hours back in silence. A month later, when I asked if I could go back to Walter's, Mom told me he had moved out west. For good. He wasn't coming to Thanksgiving like he promised. I couldn't visit him out west. If he came back, he came back. 
If not, Mom seemed pretty convinced he wouldn't. And he didn't. And then, right before Valentine's Day 1980, Mom got a call from a woman saying she was Walt's girlfriend and that he died of pneumonia in an Oakland hospital. We couldn't afford to fly out there or give him a funeral, so Mom quietly agreed to let the city take care of his remains and property. And that's it, really. Except, the Christmas before Uncle Walter died, I received a gift under the tree. It didn't have a card or say where it was from. It just appeared there after I'd finished opening the stuff Santa brought me on behalf of my mother. When I opened up the old, worn cigar box inside the Sunday Comics wrapping paper and saw the used 8-track tape of Steve Martin's Let's Get Small, I know Uncle Walter was thinking of me. I can't see a pair of nose glasses or a balloon animal or a banjo without thinking of my uncle, and that probably makes me unique. Every so often I come across a dog-eared edition of a familiar title in an old bookstore, and I wonder if that was Walt's copy, and I wonder whatever happened to all his stuff. If that girlfriend kept it, if the state auctioned it, or just burned it all up. Sometimes I even get a little angry with my mom for keeping me from knowing Walt. I know I was just a kid and she was protecting me, but it just seemed like there was a lot to know in that guy. I never understood why he was kept at a distance. He wasn't a felon, I checked, and he certainly wasn't an angry drunk. If alcoholism was grounds for barring family from my life, I wouldn't know anybody but Aunt Trudy the teetotaler. I sometimes wish I'd been a little older when I knew him. I think he might have felt a little prouder and stood a little taller while I was there. And maybe if he hadn't run into the man in the hat, he would not have thought I saw through his disguise. But Uncle Walter was one of those guys, you know. A load of potential. A sturdy wooden hull under a hundred feet of seawater far from its intended course, visible and broken, rotting into atoms as the current carries more worthy vessels on. 